In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everyone knows where this is from. The first verse in the Bible. It has been read this way by nearly everybody for more than 2,000 years. And yet recently hundreds of biblical Hebraists have said the very first word in the Bible has been mistranslated all of this time. Why would they make such a claim? And what does this say about the age of the earth? Today I have Max Kretov. We're going to talk about a very controversial subject, how to translate the very first word of the Bible, Bereshit. Uh, is it when God began to create, in the beginning God created, and, and how does this change the discussion of the origins debate and how we interpret the Bible? How are you doing today, Max? Doing great. Thank you very much. Awesome. Pleasure All right. Here. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with you and chat with you. And um, I'm excited to see how this goes. So your background, what is your experience in Hebrew and, and all that kind of stuff? All right. Well, um, I'm a big Bible nerd, uh, follow Jesus. So I'm really interested in his Bible, which is Christian Bible, but specifically the Old Testament really interests me. So I've spent most of my free time last couple of years just nerding out as much as I can in Old Testament background, uh, Hebrew, a little bit of Greek. And yeah, it just really interests me. So, and this issue in particular, I've spent a lot of time on. I've been studying Hebrew for three years, maybe, but been really focusing on it. And so, recently finished a um, master's paper, not not a thesis, but for a master's class on this subject. And so, that's the only credential I can offer. But um, as someone who's really interested in this topic, I feel pretty confident that of dipped my toes enough to have an opinion. Yeah, and uh, I'd say that one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on here, it's not simply because like I appreciate your ideas, but we've been kind of diving into this together ever since my first interview with Dr. Henry Sun. You know, we've kind of gone back and forth and like discussing different arguments for it. And uh, I just wanted to get your ideas out to the public. But um, for, for people not familiar with like my knowledge and stuff like that, I've um, taken four classes of Kairos Classroom in Hebrew, uh, which is basically Mark Furtado's book, and um, just basically dove into all the re relevant literature on this topic, trying to talk to everybody I can on it. But um, so this, this should be good. Um, so just for the audience, people not familiar with this topic, could you give us a summary of the main options for how to translate Genesis 1.1? as well as their implications. Like what, what is the significance of all this? All right, well, the first place to start is just to recognize there are multiple options for understanding the first verse of the Bible. Um, I didn't know that for a, a long while in the church. Um, and I, I know a lot of people aren't familiar that the, it's ironic, but the first word of the Bible is debated and <laughs> we're actually not completely sure how to translate it. So yeah, there are uh, uncertainties and so we are, our translations are doing interpretive work for us. Yep. Um, unfortunately, they've all really only represented one view. And so that's sort of why it hasn't come on to a lot of people's radars. Uh, but yeah, there's roughly two options, two very common, it's like two camps, basically, you can say in this discussion, as for understanding the first verse of the Bible. And I'll start with the simplest way I can think of to explain it, and then we'll move on a little bit talk a little bit more about grammar, but so we can view Genesis 1-1 in two halves. 
um, there's the first word or phrase um, in the beginning, or in Hebrew it's b, that's the preposition in, reshith, that's the word we translate beginning. There's that, and then there's the second half, which is the rest of the verse. You know, there's God, there's the event of him creating the heaven and the earth. And so here's the two options. The first half can modify the second half, or the second half could modify the first half. And so what I mean by that is that when we look at the word beginning, you need to ask what kind of beginning, right? right. And in English, it's obvious, right? Like our translations give it to us in the beginning. But again, that's option one. That's where the first uh, word specifies when the event takes place. And so there's the event in the second half. There's God, the subject, creating the object, heaven and earth. Um, that happens when? In the beginning. Okay, that's option one. You have the first word providing a, a time setting for the second half. But you can also go the other way around, and this would be option two, where you have the second half of the verse specifying when the beginning is or what beginning we're talking about. And so uh, look at the beginning and you ask yourself which beginning, right? Because uh, assuming there's no the in English, just looking at the Hebrew, there's no the, so you have to ask yourself it, what kind of beginning. And so the second option says, well, it's when God created the heaven and the earth. So I hope that puts it into uh, somewhat simpler terms, because I know looking at it without a knowledge of Hebrew, you think, well, what other, how could you put it another way? Um, well, it's just vague. There's just, uh, there's less to it than the English translations we typically read make it out to be. Hmm. And so because it's a little bit more vague, you could have something like option one in the beginning. That's when God created the heaven and the earth. But in this less common option, um, you figure out which beginning it is. And that's the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so that's mm. the simplest way I can think of putting it. But when we talk about like what, why that is, uh, here's why. Um, basically, the question is whether the first verse of the Bible is an independent sentence or a dependent sentence. And so those are technical words, but they're pretty simple. Like, is the sentence a complete thought, right? Does the, Is it a sentence? Is the verse one a sentence or is it half a sentence? And it like continues on into verse two or verse three or something like that. And so in option one, which is our traditional interpretation, which we read in most of our translations, it's a depend, independent sentence. So it stands alone and it represents an event. Like this is, I'm telling you, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, and then there's option two, um, where you look at in beginning, and we assume that the second part of the sentence is telling us which beginning, right? Because we don't know which beginning. And so that results in a dependent sentence. So the NRSV illustrates this. They interpret the sentence to be specifying when the beginning was. So in the beginning, which beginning are we talking about? We're talking about the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Um, but that's not a complete thought. Like you, you need an event. In the beginning, God, what did he do? Well, as our NRSV has it, it's verse three. And God said, let there be light, right? So that would be the event in the sentence. And verse one would just be 
like a time. The whole sentence, the whole actually verse would be uh, the time setting for that event. So you could also put it that way. Option one, first word gives us the time. The rest of verse one is the event. Option two, all of verse one gives us the time and then verse three gives us the event. Hmm. Maybe I that see. helps clear it up a little yeah. bit. Yeah, so that, that of course, uh, changes how we interpret the passage as well, right? So if, if it is when God began to create or in the beginning of, or um, in the beginning when God began to create or something like that, it's, it doesn't tell you a specific time point when God created compared to when you say in the beginning, it's the very beginning. Yeah, the implications are, are different, clearly. Uh, in the traditional view, um, probably what you have, the implication is that verse 1 of Genesis 1 gives you an event that happens at the very beginning of time. So for, the implication would be nothing happens before Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. That, that might be one of the main implications. And then in option 2, you wouldn't have that implication because you know where you're starting but you don't know where that is relative to like the absolute beginning. You just know that in the beginning when God created this happened. And so that's the main difference is that in the traditional or the option one view, um, you're being told this is the beginning. God created everything starting here. Whereas in option two, it's more like, Hey, you know, back when God started to create, this is what happened. And so they, those options have different implications for, what we think the text says about the chapter relative to the very beginning of time. Mm -hmm. Right, right, exactly. Also, you know, it helps us determine whether the the water was the, the very first, like the water was there before God started creating the tohu vavohu, um, and did God create like everything in Genesis one one, or is this like a, just a title statement? If it's just when God began to create, then it doesn't tell us anything about where the water came from or the spirit of the Lord or or anything like that. Um, so that's going to affect our interpretation of, of that very first three sets of verses there. And we have to understand what that one word means before we can even make any conclusions on that. Uh, but you also, there's, there's the one view, which is that maybe there was other multiple creation events right i think um i think robert homestead is actually that's the view he takes and that's i think he provides the best grammatical like interpretation and so i would tend to think that's the best option is that hey there's a lot of ray sheets out there there's a lot of beginnings of something right uh, but genesis 1 1 just starting in one of those it's saying hey in the beginning which one you know when god's creating the heavens and the earth um yeah i think that's plausible all right, so let's dive into that grammar. So, so you know, most people are familiar with the in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but most or very little people are familiar with the the arguments behind why should we should translate it as when God began to create or the in the beginning of. So, what would you say are the best arguments for taking that interpretation? Well, we have to realize first of all that we're studying. Uh, ancient text. Um, and that's a difficult thing. And so we the best way to know how to read it would be to ask 
like an Israelite, right? Or the person who wrote it or a native speaker of ancient Hebrew, right? Sure. But we don't have that. And so the best way to interpret any verse is to look at how those words, how that grammar works in the rest of the Bible. That's all we have, really. I mean, we have a few texts in ancient Hebrew, but it's very, very little. And so really, when we're figuring out anything as far as grammar in the Hebrew Bible, we're just looking at other verses in the Hebrew Bible. And so when we do that for this verse, I think what we see is that there is no parallel in the Hebrew Bible for the traditional view. So there's the traditional translation we have. It assumes a few grammatical points, but I don't think you can find those grammatical points elsewhere in the Bible. Hmm. And so that's, I think, is the best reason to go for the second option. I think it has better parallels. It has more, I'd say it's more possible. It's more probable to be like an actual way to read it. Uh, and so to go into the specifics of what happens when you search around the Hebrew Bible for parallels, uh, this is what you find. Okay, so you look at all the times that um, Rashith is used, beginning, we'll translate it, and you ask yourself, like, how many times does it occur with the definite article, the? How many times does it occur without it? Um, and then you ask, does it ever occur on its own? Like, can it stand on its own? Or does it need to be, like, does it need it to be complemented by something else? So there's some words that we call them like relative words where their meaning depends on another thing. And so let's take a similar word to reshith is rosh. They're actually related. Rosh means head in Hebrew. And so it's always relative to a body, to a person, or to the main body in a metaphorical sense. So that's an example of a relative word. The idea of a word being relative is kind of a difficult topic to understand. So here are a couple examples from the Bible where it is used in this way. Job 8.7, which uses the same language to refer to the early time period of Job's life. And Jeremiah 28.1, which refers to the beginning period of Zedekiah's reign. In Judea at that time, the king's first year did not begin with his accession to the throne, but later on the first day of the coming new year. Prior to the new year, the king would reign up to the point under a preliminary period of time. Jeremiah, in this passage, is referring to the preliminary time period of the king's beginning reign. In the same language is used in Genesis 1.1. Supporting the idea of the verse refers to a temporal duration instead of an absolute beginning point. So my main reason for adopting that second position is because of that first word, Rashith. It's almost always relative in meaning in the Bible. So its meaning is always dependent on something else. And we call this the construct state. And so in our verse here today, the main debate is actually, is it in construct or not? And we can get into what that is exactly a little bit later, but... Um, basically, what that means is that it's relative in meaning. And so the way I look at the evidence is that the word is always relative in meaning. And so probably it's also relative in meaning here in Genesis 1-1, which results in the translation where it's dependent on another sentence. Okay, so every time the word Bebersheet is used in the Bible, uh, it's like five times or four times, something like that. And it's it's always 
translated as in the beginning of, or, you know, that similar meaning that that second option, when God began to create that same type of meaning. And that's, that's the same exact word. So every time that word by Rashid is used in the Bible, it has one meaning, which is like the idea of when God began to create. But then you also have all these other instances where Barashith isn't uh, used, it's Rashid. So um, it's like the, the total count of how many times it's used in the Bible, apart from Genesis 1-1, is like 51 times. You and your paper actually argued that every single time it was used relatively. Uh, could you talk about wh why you think that? Yeah, so we're, we're actually per both sides of the camp. I mean, both different interpretations are pretty agreed on most of the data about the word and how it's used, except for one verse, actually. And so really, a lot of the disagreement between the groups has been how you handle that one verse. And it's obviously that one verse is hugely important because if it um, is a good parallel, then boom, the traditional uh, interpretation has their, you know, their anchor. They have their example right. of this is how we understand it. But if that verse is not supposed to be a good parallel, then that means that there is no good example in the rest of the Hebrew Bible of this traditional interpretation. And so it's actually pretty simple. Uh, like you could do this study yourself, even if you don't know Hebrew, you just need to know how to search original language, which on Logos, you just like right click search. Basically you search for the word Rashith in, in the Old Testament. It occurs a total of like 54 times or something like that. But, but they're not all important because sometimes they're different. Like they mean different things. So a lot of time Rashith means first fruit. Because uh, the word really just means like firstness, like firstosity, if that was a word. Um, and so you can have the the firstness of fruit. And so first fruit, right? So in that case, it's a noun. It refers to fruit, you know? So that's that doesn't compare to Genesis 1-1. Like we're not talking about first fruit. So you can eliminate all those uh, instances, you see? And that's how you start narrowing down to those in, those examples of the word that actually matter. So basically what we're looking for is all the other times in the Hebrew Bible where Rashith is used temporally to refer to time, not first fruits, not the firstborn, not the top of something, right? But it's used as a time word. And so that narrows it down from 50 something to like 18 is the most generous number I can, I can come up with. Um, so you can find about 18 times where it's used as a time word. And so you look at those words and you can start comparing them to Genesis 1-1. And what you find is that they, none of them have the definite article. Okay. So that's one important thing to keep in mind. And here's the kicker. They all occur in the construct state, except for one. So basically we're just that close to saying that this word is always indefinite and in construct. That makes sense so far. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's, that's where the debate is mainly in terms of looking at the data, at least it's what we do with that one exception. Like I said, there's one exception and that verse is Isaiah 46 verse 10. If you're like reading commentaries on Genesis one, one, um, they'll discuss this, right. And they'll, they'll defend their position 
and proponents of the traditional view, option one, we're calling it, uh, they'll often recognize like, hey, yeah, we, the word is almost always relative in meaning and it almost, it never has the article when it's used as a time word, but there's Isaiah 50, 46, 10, and that sort of is their defense. And so you can read that, for example, in like Thornton Wenham's commentary, Victor Matthews' commentary, Kenneth Matt, Victor Hamilton's commentary and Kenneth Matthews' commentaries. Those, those are like the big evangelical sort of commentaries people turn to. They all make the same argument. Basically, they point to Isaiah 46.10 and say, boom, this is our example. I was just going to say that idea is almost like, okay, it's possible. And that's all that matters. Yeah. yeah, as long as it's a possibility grammatically, then we have reason to pursue it or to argue for it. Yeah, but what I did in that paper is just re look really closely um, at that verse. And I don't think that's, that we're looking at it the right way. And so I was really surprised, like, hey, we're we're putting so much weight on this one verse, um, especially in the traditional view, but no one's really like going to that verse and putting forward the argument that it's it's supposed to be this way and that way. And so I decided to, to look at it. Now, okay, I, I did find out that we are looking at the verse. I just hadn't found scholars. So like I have Paul Humbert behind me. He did a look at that verse and he wrote it about in an essay. Uh, we can link it if you'd like, but he's, he's sort of the main guy who's made the argument from that verse. And he's the guy that they quote, the commentators quote. So you can see him quoted in by Hamilton and by Wenham. And so I decided to look at his arguments and to evaluate them. And basically I think they're not the best. I mean, they're good, but I think there's, there's a better interpretation of Isaiah 46, 10. And I don't think it helps the traditional view, basically. Hmm. Okay. Can we dive into the verse and get people an idea of what the verse is saying and maybe why you disagree? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'll read it in the Legacy Standard Bible. Remember the former things along past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The reason why this verse is so important to comparing to thinking about Genesis 1-1 is because of the way it behaves with the article, the definite article, the. So for context, the, one of the main um, things to figure out in Genesis 1-1 is why there isn't a definite article. Uh, maybe you didn't know this uh, if you're watching Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, right? In English, we have the beginning as the definite article. But in Hebrew, there is not a, a physical, like a explicit definite article. There's no article there. And that's something that's important. Like, you know, you'd expect it to be there, maybe. And so that's something that is huge in the in the debate here, in the discussion. And so in, in the traditional view, what they say is, okay, there's no article, um, but it can still have a definite meaning. And so it doesn't need to have the article to mean the beginning. It can still mean the beginning, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't have the. That's the argument of the traditional translation. And the justification for that is this verse, where Isaiah says, declaring the end from the beginning. And what do you have it? There's no article before beginning uh, here in Isaiah 46.10, right? So there you have it. You have a parallel. You have... Uh, declaring the end from the beginning, definite meaning, the beginning of time, right? But there's no article. 
So boom, you could have the same thing in Genesis 1.1. There's no article, but it can be a definite meaning in the beginning of time, like the very beginning. That's the argument. Um, but I just don't think that's the right interpretation of the verse. So the reason I don't think that's the best way of reading Isaiah 46.10 is because the context, right? We know context is so important. And so let me continue reading in verse uh, 11. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have formed it. Surely I will do it. Okay, so in the same breath of verse 10, you get these uh, these actions. And so God's, God's declaring, God's saying, verse 11, God's calling, and then he's going to bring it to pass. So this is like one thought. It's really tight parallelism. So you need to understand verse 10 with verse 11 and with verse 9. And what that does is it, it, it gives you a better window into what exactly Isaiah means in that, ver in that phrase that we're focused on, declaring the end from the beginning. So what end and what beginning is being talked about in verse 10? We've just assumed most of the time that it's like the beginning and end of time. But that's not like the most obvious thing that would come to mind in context. It's like there's actually a really specific thing in context here. It's this thing about calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Now, at this point in the book of Isaiah, that's talking about Cyrus, the Persian, being used as God's instrument to free his exiles from Babylon. Uh, and that's not debated. I mean, that's pretty clear. I think most scholars agree on that. Like there's these passages in Isaiah where he's talking about what Cyrus is going to do. Um, and so in verse 11, you have this reference to, to Cyrus being prophetically like referred to. And back in verse 10, that's what he's saying. Like I declare things before they happen. So it just makes a lot more sense that it, that phrase in verse 10, it's not about the beginning and end of time. It's about the beginning and end of events. Yahweh declares what will happen before they happen. Hmm. So it's not about the beginning and end of time, but the beginning and end of history or uh, periods of time. The whole point of this passage is that Yahweh predicts, Yahweh declares, and it says that in different ways but they should be understood the same way, generically, is how it should be understood. It should be understood generally. The point is not that Yahweh declares what's gonna happen at the end of time from before time. That's very specific. That's really obscure. That doesn't make sense in context. What does make sense in context is that Yahweh, in general, has the ability to make declarations ahead of time about what's going to happen. He makes prophetic utterances. He declares his will. And that's what Isaiah is saying. He declares from ancient times things that which haven't been done yet. So the point is just in general, um, before anything happens, Yahweh declares it. Before a bird of east comes, he declares it. And so what I'm saying is that the beginning here, that word, reshith, in verse 10, it's also relative in meaning. That phrase is like more like a proverb. The point is, it could be translated something like declaring um, start from finish. There's no definite, there's no articles there, start, finish. It, it's not the start and finish of time. It's just idea, like there's a finish 
line, there's a start. And the point is Yahweh declares the finish from the start. It's not about which finish. It's not about which start. It's just the point is that he can do that, right? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me ask you a few questions here to see um, see if I can maybe clarify further for those that aren't already clear. So, uh, so when I'm looking at the interpretation, like when God began to create in the beginning, my two options are like one absolute starting point and one like relative, like not doesn't specifically say what the starting point is. That's that's how I'm looking at the the context. So in Isaiah forty six ten, if we're gonna interpret the same way like i guess those are our two options when it says i make known the end from the beginning the is in this context are you saying the beginning is like a relative like long period of time or is it just a, a certain period of time or is it an exact period of time or or may, am i completely missing the the point of what you're saying yeah sort of um but it would be helpful just to rephrase the word beginning to like start um, cause like you just, even in English, the word beginning, it has these connotations, right? Yeah. Um, actually the way I'm trying to read this, explain this verse in Isaiah, that's how most evangelical, like major commentary commentators put it, which really surprised me. Presumably the same people who would be defending the traditional view in Genesis one, one, and would appeal to Isaiah 46, 10. When you go to those commentaries on Isaiah 46, 10, uh, they read it indefinitely. So, for example, Oswald, um, John Oswald, beloved commentator on Isaiah, Alec Motyer, much beloved commentator on Isaiah, even John Goldingay, international critical Blenkinsop in the Anchor Bible, they all have a similar translation. It's somewhere along, along the lines of this, declaring or announcing the outcome from the beginning or the start. And some of them don't even have the article, so it could be announcing the outcome from uh from the start or from and so like you could translate it that way and obviously when you would read that you wouldn't think like the point is about the beginning of time the idea is just generic it's just general it's not specific that's the whole point is that in general god can declare things and so i'm not, actually i'm glad to find out i'm not the i didn't come up with that um, argument. Well, I did, but I'm not the first one. So Paul Humbert uh, is a French scholar. Uh, he, he made the same argument. And uh, thankfully, he also pointed it to the Septuagint. Uh, he made a helpful point, basically the Greek translation of this verse in Isaiah 46. It, it takes it that way. And so here's an English translation of the Septuagint, like some English Septuagint, who declares beforehand the final things. Okay. So hmm. instead of from the beginning, it's beforehand. It's just, you see the difference there. I, it's hard to put to words, but it's a different interpretation. And guess what it does with the the end? It says the final things, who declares beforehand the final things. Oh, wow, yeah. And so final things is end of time. I guess you could take it that way, but it's plural. So it's not talking about the the beginning and the end. It's just saying, and guess what? The verb is plural too. Um, who declares beforehand the final things before they happen in Greek, that's plural. And at once they are accomplished. So again, that's plural. And so even the Septuagint puts it in such a general broad way, like here's things that happen before they happen, Yahweh declares them. And so that's the point. But Reshith there is 
generic. It's relative to something else. So before that, something else happens, he declares it. Yeah. Yeah. In your, in your paper, you also made an interesting argument where it looks like the, the writer of Isaiah is, I guess, making six lines and, and you have AA, BB, CC. Um, I'll put it on the screen in a, uh, after editing, but could you explain maybe what, what's going on there? Yeah. Um, I think it's helpful. What I'm trying to do is look at the poetic structure and see what's the pattern. Does it start general and become more specific? Does it start specific and become more general? And basically what the poetic structure shows is that um, each line increases in specificity. So it starts in the first line generally. So it just tells you that Yahweh declares future things. And then in the second line, it explains the kind of thing that he declares, which is his purpose, his plan. And then in the third set of lines, it it's the exact thing that he is declaring to be his purpose, which is Cyrus being his instrument. Hmm. And so that is compelling to me that in verse 10, you already have Cyrus in view. And so I, I, I still think verse 10 is general. It's meant to be general. But it just shows how if the author was thinking about something specific, it's not the beginning of time. It's Cyrus in verse 11, is it? Because mm. you can see that's where he's going. He's just building this little stepladder to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, of course, to repeat the significance of this, if Isaiah 46.10 is using Rashith in an indefinite relative way, what that would mean is that to take the word as, you know, Bereshit as in the beginning in Genesis 1-1 would be to say that it's using a word Bereshit in a way that it never uses in the rest of the Bible and all exactly. the other 50 or so times that it's mentioned. So, uh, I, I mean, some scholars would even say that, like, like if this were true, that, like, we could confidently say that, yeah, this just doesn't happen. It didn't happen. That's not the way you can use the word. Um, but, you know, as we mentioned before, though, Isaiah 46.10 is typically that one way where it's like, oh, yes, it can be used that way because we have one example. And even though it's it's one out of, you know, so many different other options where it goes against it, it's that one and it's still possible and that's what matters. Um, but there there was something else that you mentioned before we kind of get got onto all this, which is that the um there's no definite article there and right. your argument i mean we're specifically michael heiser michael heiser was you know that was his main argument and that was actually the only one he used interestingly enough to, to argue for for when god began to create but point. yeah so well and i guess the idea is like hey if the definite article isn't there then most of the time in the hebrew bible um it's it's used indefinitely like so to you know at the same time though people that take the in the beginning god created very sheet uh you know the beginning type of view they'll they'll point to other instances where there isn't a definite article but a word is still used definitely you also have pointed out that Maybe this isn't one of those instances where the word Rashid 
it's not like a it's like only a certain class of words do that is that that your opinion well i'm glad you're asking me that that's an important uh issue yes i i do think it's a specific class of words and that matters but what you were referring to is just how how we look at how that article works uh in hebrew and yeah it's not always uh it's not always there as a consonant sometimes it's just a vowel as is basically what you were referring to when you have uh -huh. A preposition before a word, that preposition will take the take the article as a vowel. So instead of b reshith, the article would be ba reshith, or actually ba because there's a guttural next to it. But yeah, it would be that's I think what you're referring to. Mm. Now that's a sort of just like a little bit of a different topic as as far as the class of a word. Yes, that is very important. Um, when we so in English, if there's no article. That means a lot, but in different languages, it isn't always like that. So Hebrew is one of those languages where you can not have the article and it could still be definite. It just depends on the word and its meaning. Okay. So yeah, the question is how, what is Rishis? Does it need the article or does it not? And that's actually one of the most important linguistic questions here uh, that would solve the issue is if like we knew does it need the article or not? That would, that would solve the problem. The problem is we don't know. My, my argument is that when you look at the data, it's not that it needs the article, but it doesn't have the article ever for a reason. And that reason is because it's combined with other words. So in English, we do this by saying in the beginning of, in the beginning of, of King, blah, 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 this happened. That's how the word's always used, except for Isaiah 46 10, which we talked about that, but Every other place, which is like 17 times, um, yes, temporally 17 times, it's always in the beginning of this guy's reign, in the beginning of this year, in the beginning of that, so and so forth. And so the idea is that it never needs the article because it's it receives its specificity. That's like what the article does. It specifies what we're talking about um, from the thing it's describing. So um, in beginning, we don't know what beginning we're talking about. Uh, in English, we say in the beginning of this king's reign. But in Hebrew, you wouldn't say in the beginning. You would just say in beginning of the king's reign. And that second the would carry, would would work for the beginning. Does that make sense? Mm. So we, we, use the, we use the article before each word in a phrase, in the beginning of the king's reign. Hebrew only uses it for the last, uh, what we call the host or the um, the head of the phrase, and the 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 previous elements just receive the specificity from that. So mm. in Hebrew, it would be horse of the king means in English the horse of the king, and so um, so yeah, I was explaining that's how I think the article works with uh, the first word of the Bible is that it never takes it because it's always combined with something else. And why is it always combined with something else? Because it's always relative in meaning. It's always the beginning of something. Mm. And so in the traditional view, it, they, they, um, they don't think it works that way because of Isaiah 46.10. And they'll say, well, look, it's not always the beginning of something. Sometimes it's just the beginning. Doesn't need the article. But again, it is the beginning of something in Isaiah 46.10. You mentioned other scholars making an argument about word class. And I think what you're referring to is the argument that, hey, let's look at similar words to 
Rashith. And let's ask how they behave. And that's a that's another um, important argument for option one. Mm. Basically, there are other time words which don't have to have the article to refer to the beginning of time. Mm. And so they'll say, look, here's some examples. There's no article here, but this time word clearly refers to the beginning of time. Therefore, maybe the same thing's happening with Rashith. Um, and that for a long time, that that's been a great argument of, you know, it sounds convincing, right? That's, that's a good way to, um, to analyze grammar, right? Um, of course you need good parallels. You need words that really are similar. And basically the words that have been traditionally compared to Rashith, I don't do not think are that similar. So if you're a Hebrew nerd, or if you're interested, the words are uh, Rosh, Kedem, Olam, um, those are translated like eternity or old times or head or before. Yeah, those are different. Um, so Olam is just really complicated. Uh, that, it's just so much different that it doesn't make sense to compare them. Like Olam inherently refers to strange time. Like that's actually what the word means. It's hard to translate. It just means like distant, unknown time. And so, of course, it doesn't need the article where we're talking about like unknown distant time in the eternity past. And so that's an example of like a word that I don't think you should use to compare to Rashith, which is like, it, we know what time we're talking about with Rashith. Um, but I mean, that's all technical. And Robert Homestead made the point that actually it was Josh Wilson in his dissertation um, was actually trying to analyze that argument and he ended up not using it. So this is huh. Joshua Wilson. He wrote a dissertation on this topic, defending the traditional view, and he's doing his thorough research and he brings up that argument as you should as a PhD student. And he basically says, hey, this isn't a good argument. I'm not going to use it. Uh, and that's where I get my, the, what I'm saying right now is. Um, so I think that's pretty indicative of of that argument. But I don't know if it was him that said this or it was. Uh, somewhere else that I found it. But basically, if we do want to compare Rashith to those similar other words, fine. Guess what? There are better words to compare it to. So let's compare it to those words. Uh, actually, it's one word, Acharith. It means end. Let's compare beginning to that word, end. And what do we get? Same thing. No article, indefinite. There you go. So um, we're comparing it those scholars are usually comparing it to the wrong words, in my opinion. And so I think when we compare it to the right words, that really shoots that whole like approach, you know, in the foot, because it argues for the second option. Mm -hmm. Common argument for interpreting in Genesis 1-1 as a relative phrase, like when God began to create, is that this formulation parallels the first sentence and structure of the beginning of other creation accounts that were written near the time of Genesis. Here's a video explaining this. This actually makes Genesis 1 cohere more with how ancient Near Eastern creation accounts begin. Verse 1 is seen as a stage-setting prepositional phrase for what follows, a dependent clause followed by verse 2, a circumstantial clause, and finally arriving at verse 3, the main clause. As Ben Stanhope says, This formula was the customary way to open a creation account, as it is the same structure in the Enuma Elish, the Atrahasis, Assyrian Carrefour tablet, and the creation account of Adam and Eve, beginning in Genesis 2-4b. So Genesis 1 
should be understood as a dependent clause, and God's first creative act doesn't begin until verse 3, when God says, let there be light. It seems unlikely that such an odd formulation would be so common in these other texts, especially in Genesis 2, which is so close to Genesis 1. This makes it more likely that the writer of Genesis 1 preferred the when God began to create interpretation because Genesis 1 would match the structure perfectly while any other view would not. Do you, do you find that convincing? I think those are valuable things to consider, but I like to have evidence in like different tiers of importance. Okay. So for me, that's a little bit lower on the tier list of important things to consider. Hmm. Um, now, if we didn't have grammatical things to look at, that might be one of the main things that we could go off of. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't think that's that's terribly reliable because I can see perfectly why it would be similar to those other texts. I could also see why it wouldn't be. You know, it could go either way. But you mentioned Genesis 2, was it 4 through 7? Yep. Yeah, basically the argument there is that um, it doesn't matter how you look at the accounts, but there's like the first creation account, then there's like the part two in chapter two. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And with, yeah, with the, um, with the like introduction, basically in, in verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made heaven. I mean, earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field, blah, blah, blah had happened, but a stream would rise from it. Then God formed man. So those four through seven, there is a long introduction to that account. Um, and basically the argument is that, hey, that's a great parallel to the first three verses of Genesis 1. And so it would be satisfying. Mm, yeah. Like we, we know that these texts are very, very literarily sophisticated. Like they're beautiful, the way they're set up, the parallelism, the way the days fit together, the introductions, the conclusions. I mean, even the number seven is fit in there. Like there's... Uh, like pairs of seven, everything's seven. There's like, watch watch the Bible Project class on Genesis yep. 1. It's incredible. Tim Mackey has like a 15-hour class on just Genesis 1. And basically all he does is look at literary structure, okay? So that's yep. how incredible the like the artistry is to the, the, these passages. Yep. Um, and so it would make sense that when you look at them together, they would like fit. Like there's an introduction over here, similar to an introduction over here. And there's a conclusion over here, similar to a conclusion over here. So yeah, I think it makes a lot more sense um, if it's a lot better together. If you have four through seven being this like long sentence or idea parallel to a long idea over there. Now you can run the parallel other ways with the traditional view, but it just works a little bit better. Um, it's closer. It's a closer parallel with the option number two. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Okay. So the, the the big like go-to argument in this discussion from my experience is hey like church history okay so the from the very beginning of our earliest interpretation of Genesis 1:1 which is the Septuagint which is not in Hebrew but we know that they interpreted it as a definite well most a lot of scholars at least they'd say that hey we know it's definite because they translated it as in which is in their opinion in the beginning and that is you know around two three hundred ad or two three hundred bc and you know that's that's really early that's their earliest mention of this 
So what you're essentially arguing is that, hey, the people that knew Hebrew like super, super early that translated into Greek messed this up. And so did so many other translators and interpreters that they translated as an independent statement as in the beginning for all this time. Uh, so and, and how, how do you interpret like what, what do you do with that information? Specifically, the Septuagint, uh, you know, seem to be translating it differently. What do you think about that? Yeah, um, well, there's two ways we could look at it. We can try to evaluate what the Greek actually was thinking, what they were translating. Okay. Or we can ask whether it matters or not. And so <laughs> I'm actually going to skip to that second one and, because that's more important, actually. It's okay. just like, how, how much do we actually weigh the evidence of the Septuagint? And of course, like it's important. Um, those are probably native speakers of biblical Hebrew. So like they, sh if anyone should have known what was going on in Genesis 1-1, it should have been them. And that's why you're asking me. Um, and yeah, I don't like to say that they're wrong. Um, I hate to have to uh, say that. I wish that um, what the way I look at the evidence pointing towards, I wish I could say that that was the traditional view, but it's not. And yeah, what that means, I'm not sure. Is it, you know, here's the thing, like personally studying other, all sorts of topics in the Bible. And hopefully you guys can relate, especially if you're watching Zach's channel, like you just like to cover these topics that are like controversial and things that go against tradition in a way. I think we've all had an experience if you've studied those types of things where you just find that there are times, wow, where you just like realize something we've got totally wrong in my, in your church tradition. And I've had enough of those moments. Um, not that I'm looking for them, but I've just realized, Hey, there are times where tradition gets something wrong. And I think we all have to recognize that's a possibility. Right. Um, and I think we all do. It's just that in practice, when we come across those things, it's really hard to say, Hey, I think we got this wrong. Let's fix it. Um, but yeah, I do think there's room for that. And I think this is one of those cases. I think, unfortunately, somehow, I don't know how, um, tradition, ancient translators got it wrong. And uh, somehow, um, yeah, somehow we're looking at it differently now. Um, so, yeah, it's about weighing evidence. Like I said, the whole tiered uh, thing of evidence for me, the the Hebrew text is like tier one. That's what matters. And then the Greek text is like lower, right? You know, I think everyone agree that's how it has to be. And so if someone is convinced that the Hebrew Bible evidence points you in this direction, then I think you better go in that direction. I think that would be wrong to look at look the evidence of the Septuagint to like override that. Right. So, yeah, for me, it's just a thing of priorities. At the same time, other scholars have argued that the Septuagint didn't read Genesis 1-1 as in the beginning, though. Take, for example, Dr. Robert Homestead, who argues Arche is used with the article elsewhere in the Septuagint to reference a beginning. This indicates that the Septuagint provides an ambiguous witness at best and certainly does not support reading Masoretic text Bereshith as definite. For those curious, Scholars like Dr. Michael Heiser have argued it would be better interpreted as in the initial period, God created the heavens and the earth in the Septuagint. 
Now, if anybody knows Greek, we have NRK. We do not have a definite article there. To, to be really strict, you would say in beginning or idiomatically to begin with or when God made the heavens and the, you know, you, you initially would be a good word. Initially God created. But again, that leaves an incomplete thought. It, le- it, it feels like it's, it's leading somewhere as opposed to being, you know, definite point in time. And in the, in the, the case of the Septuagint here, they do not have the article. I mean, just from my opinion, my research, I think there's actually a lot of reasons to doubt, like, their ability to understand Hebrew. I mean, there's like a billion different places you can point to where they like completely mess things up, like the the Septuagint translators, where you're like, there's no way they could have come to this conclusion like with a sane mind, like yeah, just they, completely someone was having like, a bad day. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, it was some just really baffling things. But specifically in this instance, we actually do have examples where they mistranslate similar verb construction. So in my last interview where I interviewed Dr. Or, you know, on this topic was Dr. Henry Sun. And we talked about how Bereshit is supposedly a construct noun. And a lot of people would say, oh, no, you can't have that construct noun next to a finite verb, which is the word bara. You can't have those two types of words next to each other because that just doesn't happen in Hebrew. Well, of course, you can mention a bunch of times where it does happen in Hebrew, but then a lot of people say, okay, well, you know, it's really awkward or it's bad. And like, that's why it was never used or very rarely ever used that way. Um, but it's interesting that we actually have examples in the Septuagint where they actually did make the same mistake in other places. And Hosea 1-2, which is like almost everybody in the world agrees like, hey, Hosea 1-2, that has a construct noun with a finite verb, just like Genesis right. 1, 1 would be under your opinion. Um, and so like, it's certainly possible, but in the Septuagint, they messed up the translation and they translated it differently than, than the, what we know is, is what it was originally. Um, according to almost nearly every scholar in the world. Um, additionally, Jeremiah 6.15 and Jeremiah 50.31 also seem to mistranslate the relative clauses. So it seems like, okay, maybe they just had a t- difficult time with translating relative clauses. But you can also look at other later rabbis, and they mistranslate the same Hebrew construction uh, in, in, in a really odd way. Uh, would that be uh, Psalm 81.6 as well as Hosea 1.2? And uh, you can look on my screen for the, the citation for all that. But it seems like people in ancient times seem to maybe not, not understand this form of Hebrew construction very well. And maybe that's why they mistranslated Genesis 1.1 in the Septuagint and maybe all these other ancient texts. But yeah, I mean, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, no, you're right. There's all sorts of reasons why a Septuagint translator might have got something wrong. And like, you're right. We do have a lot of examples where they do get things wrong. And so we all know that's a possibility. It's just that it just seems really improbable that they would get the first verse wrong. Or, you know, and even if like what you're proposing, that maybe the specific type of grammatical construction they weren't the best at. I mean, even if that's not very convincing, then... The point is there are explanations like that. There's all sorts of possibilities like that, which could explain why they got something wrong. I just, you know, the point, we don't need to 
to come up with the answer of like why they got it wrong. <laughs> you know, all we have to do is look at the data and give it our best guess. Um, but yeah, I, I do think the witness of Septuagint is important, but obviously yep. the evidence in the Hebrew Bible is more important. And just for other people's uh, information, um, Targum Ankalos translated as in former times. So neither translation, but it's it's kind of like that relative meaning in former times. That's how they translate Genesis 1-1, as well as uh, Rashi and Ibn Ezra also translate Bereshit as in construct. Right. Rex is arguing here. So Dr. Josh Wilson, he, you've mentioned him here. He, you know, he did his dissertation on this topic and he's written for Answers in Genesis, their uh, scholarly journal, if you'll call it that. And he, you know, he's made all these interesting arguments and, and one stated out particularly that I wanted you to comment on and see what you thought. So, um, so basically he points out that reading it this way, as in like when God began to create that it requires us to conclude things that don't ever occur anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. So he says, in all 209 examples in the Hebrew Bible, the genitive clauses and their regents, I don't even know how to pronounce that, are not separated from their participatory clauses by both a clause level wall and a verse ending sophbasuk or with an intervening parenthetical comment like in Genesis 1-2. So obviously that's nonsense to 99% of people listening. <laughs> But uh, could you maybe explain that sentence there for us and maybe or maybe put it into English and, <laughs> sure. um, and, and, and why is that not give you uh, pause when, when interpreting it this way? Right. Um, well, basically what Dr. Wilson is doing is he's just taking my interpretation, the option two, and he's saying, okay, what's the general shape? And then he searches throughout the whole of the Hebrew Bible for that general shape to see if it happens. And he says it doesn't. Okay, that's the argument is that basically, um, what I see in, in my interpretation of the grammar, he says, it would be really strange for that to be here this way. And he's, he's pointing to three things, right? So in Genesis 1, 1, uh, you have three, you could say, like, you know, intriguing details, or uh, for him points that are relevant, I guess it doesn't matter what order. So one thing he sees is that there is a, a, a sentence in between verse one and verse three. In the untraditional, in option two, verse one is the first half of a sentence that ends in verse three. It's actually one sentence, one, two, and three. And what verse two is, is a like an aside, a parent, a parentheses. Excuse me. So what he's saying is, um, hey, you never have another example of this kind of sentence with that sentence inserted and these other two things. Okay. And the second thing is, um, uh, a, a conjunction basically in the middle of it. So, um, he calls it a, a while. That's the Hebrew letter. That is the conjunction. And so when that, when that conjunction is used as a, like a sentence marker, um, he's saying it's not used in the middle. Like it would be awkward to insert that like a strong conjunction in between a sentence. So he's saying the whole inserted sentence plus the conjunction plus the third thing doesn't happen. And the third thing is um, the verse ending. At the end of verse one in the Masoretic traditional Hebrew text, you have this little semicolon, which is basically like a period. Um, and he's saying like, 
if this is one sentence, why do you have that? And so he's saying, hey, that plus the inserted sentence plus the law of conjunction, those three things combined are really awkward. We don't see that anywhere else. The reason I don't find that convincing, uh, for one, is because uh, his goal was to find all the other examples of such sentences, like Genesis right. 1, 1 through 3. But I don't think he actually manages to find them. Um, I didn't find these. I just noticed this. Robert Homestead wrote an article, a follow-up article on his other article that Henry Sun talked about on the channel. Um, and he gives some examples of the kind of grammar that option two requires. And I noticed those examples are great, but they're not in Dr. Wilson's uh, search. They're not in his mm -hmm. uh, data. And so um, what that means is they ran their searches differently. So Homestead managed to find some examples that Josh Wilson excluded. Um, my guess is that it wasn't on accident. It's just a matter of like what you're looking for. So when you're doing this type of study, um, you're trying to build a really complicated search, um, a grammatical search, like, hey, I need a noun without the article followed by a predicate that has a verb and it does not have the article and is followed by a prepositional phrase without the direct object marker. And this all needs to happen after a sentence like this. And it needs to happen before another sentence like this, right? You're, that's the kind of search you're running. It gets pretty complicated. Yeah. And so depending on how you build it, you'll exclude or include different verses. And so the way that Dr. Wilson built it, he got those 219 or whatever. Um, but he it apparently was too specific the way I see it. Yeah, so I didn't get the chance to, to look into the details of, of why he, Dr. Wilson didn't have all the examples. Um, but that's obviously a big hole in the argument is if he didn't actually look at all the data. Um, but in general, what he's saying is true, okay? So it's true that you never have another sentence with all those different details, you know, mixed up. But the question is, like, is that convincing? Do we need another example with all those, you know, details? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it would be helpful if we did, like he has a point, it, it matters that this would be sort of rare, um, what we see. But here's the point, his argument is that those three things never occur all at once, but they do occur not at once. Does that make sense? So for example, he's saying here in Genesis one, one through three, there's that like verse ending in between the, in between the sentence. Um, we do have that happen. We do have a verse ending, so basuk, a period, so to speak, in the middle of a sentence that happens. Yep. Um, and his second thing was that, hey, you, you don't have an interclausal, you don't have a conjunction that would start a new sentence in between a sentence um, happening. Okay, so we know that happens. It's just that that doesn't happen combined with the other thing that doesn't happen combined with the other thing does, doesn't happen. So I hope that makes more sense. So what he's doing is stringing together like a really specific condition that we're looking for, which I don't think is fair. He proves that you can't have those three things happen. Like we have examples. And so basically we have possibility. Like we could say, hey, what we see in Genesis 1, 1 through 3 is weird. But all of those weird features happen. So, hey, they could happen at once. Why not? And Dr. Wilson's right. We don't have another example of them happening all at once. Again, we don't need to have them happen all at once. They do happen 
it's not a far stretch to say that they could have happened in a very special and complicated sentence, which, um, who wrote that book that you sent me uh, recently? Ben Stanhope. Ben Stanhope. Yeah, uh, he, he was looking through the same argument and that's what he's at like it's a complicated situation it's a difficult sentence so and it's a special sentence right it's a it's this kind of like introduction it's it's got this like legendary tone like in in the beginning when this that and this, the earth was without form and then god spoke you know it's a grand thing it makes sense that it would break not rules but it would be a bit different and so mm. that's why dr wilson's argument there doesn't give me pause mm. yeah yeah, so yeah, Ben didn't mention the sophistuck in his in his book, uh, but uh, there certainly are places where the sophistuck is used. And it's not actually the end of a sentence. Um, maybe just for the audiences, like what that is exactly. Yeah, so you mentioned the two dots, but of course those two dots they were put there around the time of the Middle Ages. Right, uh, it's not original to the text. Yeah, it wasn't original to the text. Um, so one, we are, even if you go with this argument, you are going off of the specific translator's opinion and of when that should be put there and when shouldn't it. And you, you do admit that almost all of the time the Sapotsuk is used that it is you know, like the end of a sentence, but there are certainly other times where it's not. Um, and so what's, sorry, yeah, but what's interesting is that when it's used in the middle of a sentence, uh, the examples that Dr. Wilson found, um, the, the reason why is because the sentences are long. So there's a few, there's like, I don't know, four or something examples of uh -huh. uh, in the middle of a sentence. They're long sentences. So of course that makes sense if it would be happening in the first sentence of the Bible yeah. if it's three verses. Right, yeah. So that's that's interesting you mentioned that. So, I mean, do you think the medieval translator or translator or whatever that is, uh, that was adding scribe. those vowels. Yeah, the scribe. Uh, do you think that he actually thought it was the end of the sentence or was it no. something else? I don't think that those are meant to indicate sentences. Hmm. They're, they indicate verses. And most of the time, verses also indicate sentences. Like we don't like to break up <laughs> verses in the middle of a sentence. Yeah. Uh, guess what? Sometimes we do have to do it and sometimes they had to do it. So I don't think he was, the scribe was trying to divvy up sentences he was trying to divvy up verses and sometimes mm. he had to break up a sentence so yeah interesting yeah yeah that that is fascinating okay so uh let's see what else we have here oh yeah so the there is a disjunctive accent in the word bereshit and we briefly touched on, on that in my interview with dr sun but i wanted to go into that more deeply so could you talk about why people would be hesitant to take an interpretation like you because of this disjunctive accent? And you can look on the screen and you'll see what that disjunctive accent is. Yeah, so uh, what accents are is that there's they are these intricate squiggles that the scribes copying the Hebrew text throughout the ages have added mm -hmm. um, to the words and they're they're the reason they're there is actually debated. We're not completely sure. So one view is that they uh, indicated like pace of reading for singing or for chanting, hence can cantillation marks, chant, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, or probably a better view 
um, uh, I read this in Homestead from another scholar, so it's like third hand, but another view is that um, they're, they align with prosody. I don't know if that's pronounced, but the idea is like the pace, not the pace of reading, but the, the rhythm of reading. So like when we read, there's a rhythm to it and, and you pause at a certain point and you speed up at a certain point. There you go. So there's some, some accents that indicate like when you pause. So disjunctive, it, it sort of, it stops you a little bit. So yeah, there's those one, there's one of those disjunctive accents on the word, but sheath. And so some people, a lot of traditional interpreters have tried to use that as a evidence to say that the word is on its own. Like, why would you pause if it's not on its own? Right. Cause I want to read it. I want to continue like, but is she when it's like one thought. Um, so first of all, again, not original to the text. These are Masoretic scribes a thousand years later, maybe more, maybe less. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not part of the like inspired text we would call it. It's a valuable piece of evidence, right? Uh, but again, tiers of data. Now to address the argument, um, let me just read Kenneth Matthews. So in his commentary, uh, he explains the argument. This is in footnote 103. Um, I'll send it to you. This is footnote 103. He says, some argue that the Masoretic disjunctive accent, tifcha is what we find, uh, with bureshith indicates that the Masoretes read the phrase as independent. And so that's his summary. He's saying that a lot of interpreters have seen the accent and they assume that tells us what the Masoretes thought, the scribes. Like we, we know what the scribes think because we see the accent. Um, but here's what he says next. However, the tifra is not decisive in determining the Masoretic opinion since it can be shown that a disjunctive accent occurs with Bereshith when the construct dependent relationship is certain. So mm-hmm. what he's saying is it's not, it doesn't tell us for a fact what the Masoretes thought as far as is it relative or Ill, not relative construct or not construct um, because there's other times it occurs on a word where we know it's construct. So he gives the examples there, Jeremiah 26, one. Um, it, that's just one example. Um, but yeah, there it is. So it doesn't matter if there's a disjunctive accent because um, it could still be construct. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, uh, Dr. F- Mark Furtado said something really interesting. This is out of my Hebrew expertise, but he was a, he's kind of an authoritative figure on the topic. But he said, he said, if a segment has three units, a disjunctive is expected. A construct chain of three words typically has one disjunctive. So the disjunctive in Genesis 1-1a does not rule out reading Bereshith in construct with bra. So... Uh, yeah, I, I don't fully understand all that, but interesting. Yeah, I don't either. But what he actually wrote a book on the accents, which I'd like to read someday. Um, <laughs> but it, but what I heard is that you actually expect the accent there, so it's not it's not like something unusual. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah. So maybe someone in the comments can explain that. I haven't spent a lot of time studying the accent, so I'm not an expert on that yeah. anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So. I don't know how much time you have, but I did want to talk about arguments for the summary statement or reading it as like a title 
Genesis 1-1 is the title. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That be the title of, of right. the narrative of Genesis 1-1. Um, so what, do, what do, would you say are the best arguments for that position? Yeah. Um, well, I used to hold this position. So fun fact. I think the best argument is uh, the phrase heavens and earth, um, which I prefer skies and land. Um, I think it's more accurate. Um, basically, um, a lot of most scholars agree that that phrase in verse one of Genesis one, mm -hmm. the heavens and the earth is what we call a merism. It's a, it's like a, a poetic device where you take the opposites like from head to toe and those opposites signify the whole thing together. Right. So head to toe refers to like something being thoroughly to do with your body. And so this could be a mirrorism. God created the skies up top and the land below, and that could refer to everything. So it could just be a little phrase that refers to everything, not necessarily just heavens and earth, but everything. Right. Uh -huh. And actually, if you search, um, again, the value of comparing other examples in the Hebrew Bible, if you find this phrase in the Hebrew Bible, it's used like that a ton. Like you find all these passages where, um, where it talks about the heavens and the earth. And the point is everything. And the, it, the point's not that it's just two items, right? Up and down. The point is everything, right? Um, everything in between. So, exactly. And why that's important is because if that refers to everything and Genesis 1-1 is, let's assume it's a, its own sentence in the traditional view, then how can you have in verse one, God creating everything. And then in the next verses, he goes on to create those things. Right, right, right. So it's just like it's a redundancy issue. And so um, the if you're assuming that it's uh, one sentence, then you have two options uh, in the in the traditional grammar. You have two interpretation options. Uh, one is that it's an event and one that it's not an event. It's like a summary. Um, so traditionally, it's an event like this actually happens, like God created the heavens and the earth in verse one and then everything else happened. Uh, but like you said, there's a pretty common view in scholarship that it's not an event, but it's a summary. Like it's like a title and then everything else happens after. Yeah. And the reason that's strong and I think gains a lot of traction is because it just flows better with the logic. Like it just doesn't make sense to say God created the skies and land. No, on the second day, he goes on to create the skies again. And then on the other day, he makes the land again. So... Mm -hmm. So that's that's a big one. Another one is just that it makes sense literarily. Like it makes sense in terms of the art. Mm. Like like we said, the next account in Genesis 2, 4, or we'll call it the same account. Doesn't matter what your view is on that. Um, it also has an introduction. So it would make sense that the Genesis 1 also has an introduction. Um, yeah, and there, there's another argument, which is very interesting. This is uh, John Walton. Uh, I think it's his idea. At least that's where I read it. He didn't cite anyone. But he says, hey, you know, in, in the book of Genesis, throughout the whole book of Genesis, we have these uh, catchphrases, you know. These are the generations of so-and-so. These are the generation, right? We call these the totally doth, or the, depending on your pronunciation of that word. Uh, there's 11 of these in Genesis. And everyone recognizes that's important. Like, you read any instruction to Genesis, any, any like commentary will tell you, Hey, look, 
it's broken up into 11 sections with these signature little titles. These are the generations of Abraham, blah, blah, blah. But how many are there? Like what? It was 11, right? Now, come on. We're reading the Hebrew Bible. And we like sevens. And if we're close to a number that has to do with uh, seven or 12, then we might as well go there, right? And for real, like watch the Bible Project classes on yep. uh, the Old Testament. You'll see this. But yeah, basically, why why would the why would a Hebrew author use the number eleven when you could use twelve? Like it's just it's just too good to be true. And so their argument is that Genesis one one is another title, and then what you get is twelve. And so boom, the book of Genesis, which describes the beginning of God's people, which mm. are the twelve patriarchs, the twelve tribes of Israel. The whole book would be div divided into 12 sections like that would just mm -hmm. be amazing um yeah and that's possible like you could say well there's no way because you don't have the word these are the generations of in genesis 1 1 right and the argument is that hey that word never uh it's always resumptive like it always looks back to what came before to move the story on and the argument is hey you can't do that in genesis 1 1 because there's nothing that goes before in the story right so there is a reason why there would be a difference. Um, another reason why that argument makes some sense is because you don't even need to have 11. Like you could have 10. Esau has two in the same, in like the same chapter in like chapter 38. I think it's also chapter 39. So in like in the same like passage in Genesis, Esau of all people has two Toledo statements. Abraham only has one, Jacob only, you know, you get it. Why would Esau have two? So I have not come across a good reason for him to have two. Maybe there is, and this would destroy the argument, but I haven't found one. So the best reason I can think of is that he, the author was just trying to inflate the number to 12, right? <laughs> so I just, that's very interesting. I like that. Yeah. Um, again, I don't think the grammar suggests it, but if, if the traditional view of the grammar is correct, that's actually where I would go. Yeah. Another interesting little argument for the, uh, summary title view, like you were saying, is this comparison actually to chapter two verses one through three. Um, chapters two verses one through three, it's like this, the conclusion to the account. So thus, the heavens and the earth, we'll highlight that, were completed and all their hosts. And on the seventh day, God, we'll highlight that, completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created in making it. We'll highlight that. And so there's three elements there, which we also had in the first verse. Heaven and earth, God, and created. Mm -hmm. And so the point, the cool thing here is that in one one, it's it goes bara, Elohim, heaven and earth. So it goes create, God, heaven and earth. That's the order. But here it's opposite. It goes, thus the heavens and earth were completed on the seventh day. God completed his work, which he did in making it. So there's like this mirroring going on. There's the beginning of the count. That's the order. And then at the end of the count, it's the same thing in the opposite order. Now that could just be a coincidence. It's only like three words we're looking at. They're keywords, but probably it's on purpose. I mean, because of how beautiful the text is it's probably on purpose mm -hmm. um which which means you have an introduction and you have a conclusion 
So there you have it. It would, it would make more sense for verse one to be a literary introduction um, than to just be it. Boom, you know, let's go. So with that being said, then, I mean, does that work in favor of reading it as Genesis 1-1 as a relative clause in any way? I guess because the comparison would be between a long sentence and like a string of shorter sentences. Um, so two, chapter two, verses one through three, it's not one sentence. I don't know if anyone argues for that. Um, doesn't look like it. But the comparison is more similar in length in terms of word count, which I'm, should I count them now? Do you want to do that? No, I've no, never done that. To... <laughs> cool. I mean, there's certainly parallels. I mean, Tim Mackey, you know, clearly shows that there's it's that parallel is on purpose between a, a chunk at the end and the chunk, the chunk at the beginning. The author of Genesis 1 has woven this the number 7 Walton. into every part uh, of the I think story. it's his idea. There are seven days of creation, he didn't seven anything. announcements that creation says, hey, is good. You know, in, there are seven Hebrew words in the opening verse, verse. We have these, and then two times seven uh, Hebrew words you know, in verse 2. These are the generations and then the statement about so -so. the seventh the day has three right? lines of seven words. I guess for me is what fits better with the data, seeing it as like a summary title statement or seeing it as a relative clause or hypothetically even seeing it as just like a basic independent clause. Right. Um, well, if, if the reversed order that we looked at is on purpose, then what you have is uh, three elements, which are, well, actually it could be argument for the title view and not the relative clause view, because the introduction would be just verse one with those three elements. And the conclusion would be at the end of the chapter with those three elements. So what I'm saying is the three elements we'd expect to be in one sentence. And so that could be an argument that the first one is one sentence because it has those three elements that are reversed at the end. Mm. I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, no, it does. So maybe, maybe it fits just a little bit better, but you know, that's not going to break, make or break anything. Yeah, but there's also, so we're comparing the intro to the outro. But you can also compare the intro to the next intro. So the question right. is also like, what's supposed to be closer? Is it supposed to be closer to this its own outro or to the intro of the next creation account? So that's where it gets a little bit uh, dicey because you can compare it different ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Did you have any other views worth mentioning that you want to talk about? Yeah, well, I'll mention a third view, okay. which Robert Homestead brought to my attention. Um, uh, so we've been arguing, or we've been looking at the arguments about a uh, definiteness, like is the first word of the Bible definite or not? Uh, is it grammatically definite or not? And is it construct or not? Is it relative? Is it connected to the rest of the sentence or not? And so to, to put it in grammatical terms, option one was indefinite grammatically, definite in meaning, independent sentence. To put it grammatically, the second option was uh, indefinite grammatically, indefinite in the meaning, and incomplete sentence. The third option is just face value. It doesn't have the article, it's not definite, and it's a complete sentence. In a beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a perfectly, perfectly possible interpretation. In fact, um, Homestead was surprised. No one's talking about it. I'm also surprised no one's talking about it. So yeah, I'd like to mention that. Um, 
somehow <laughs> a third totally defensible grammatical interpretation of the first verse of the Bible people just ignored, hmm. which it doesn't sound as good as the other ones in a beginning. It's just really generic. So I can see why it's not really popular, but that's just as popular. I mean, possible, right? So huh. I'll throw that well, I guess there. maybe contextually people would have an issue with it because I mean, one, there is the inherent idea that, Hey, most people think that Genesis one is describing the material creation of the world. And you don't create all these things if they've already been created before. So, so and if, if this is the first time where everything's been created, then it doesn't make sense to say that there's other creation periods, right? Right. Right. But it doesn't have to imply that there would be other creation events. Okay. It could just imply there were other beginnings. So well, know, what other it, kind of beginnings would there be? Uh, the beginning when God didn't create. So the beginning of, we can fantasize what else was going on. Angels, I don't know, just creating space okay. and time. Okay, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, so the, mm -hmm. just the idea is that in Hebrew, Rashith does not have to be so, so massive as the word, English word beginning, like English no. word beginning, like you can only have one, come on. Um, but if Rashith is just a really like, a, just a lot softer of a word, you can have all yeah. sorts of Rashiths, right? So, and that's, if the audience is in that sort of mindset, it makes sense to read you know, okay, here's one Rishith where God created heaven and earth. This is an initial period. We can call it that initial period. It's a little bit less, you know, up there with connotations. Yeah, yeah that's fun. That's fun. All right. Well, it's it's been a... Oh, also, one more thing. Um, how much do you know about Greek? Uh, I've done a little bit of Greek. Uh, less proficient at it than uh, Hebrew. Why? Because I, I noticed you didn't mention, so Heiser and Homestead both mentioned that uh, NRK can be translated as just like in a beginning or in the initial period of like, it doesn't have to specifically refer to that because there isn't an article there. But at the same time, a lot of Greek scholars would also say, well, like Greek has the same thing that Hebrew does where there doesn't have to be an article for it to refer to a specific, you know, absolute point. Uh, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think you just summed it up there. Um, it can go either way in Greek as well. Um, scholars have said, hey, there's the same problem. Like the word can work with the article. It can work without the article. Um, so I guess the reason that's significant is it just tells us that the Greek is also a little bit vague at least on the article. So yeah. the Greek is a bit more clear where they're going with the syntax, with the way the sentence works. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a little bit less clear what they thought about the article because it also, they don't translate it with the article in Greek. Um, but like Homestead pointed out in his second article, there are times where they do say then Argen, so the beginning. Um, hmm. So I guess on the article, it's a bit mixed what the Septuagint might have, what they might have thought. Uh, but in terms of the sentence level, I think they, they clearly thought it was one sentence. All right. And then next year, we'll come back. And after we're experts in Greek, we'll yes. have another conversation just on Anarche. All right. <laughs> All right. Leave it in the comments, um, Greek nerds. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Well, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Max. Awesome um, getting together here, hashing these things out. Uh, thanks so much for coming on here. Um, 
we'll all be watching your journey as you, be, you become the best Genesis 1-1 scholar in the world. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks again. Um, and But otherwise, uh, I, hope, I hope you have a good rest of your night. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Awesome, thanks. Merit different ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, did you have any other views worth mentioning that you want to talk about? Yeah, well, I'll mention a third view, okay. which Robert Homestead brought to my attention. Um, uh, so we've been arguing, or we've been looking at the arguments about a definiteness, like is the first word of the Bible definite or not? Uh, is it grammatically definite or not? And is it construct or not? Is it relative? Is it connected to the rest of the sentence or not? And so to, to put it in grammatical terms, option one was indefinite grammatically, definite in meaning, independent sentence. To put it grammatically, the second option was uh, indefinite grammatically, indefinite in the meaning, and incomplete sentence. The third option is just face value. It doesn't have the article, it's not definite, and it's a complete sentence. In a beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a perfectly, perfectly possible interpretation. In fact, um, Homestead was surprised no one's talking about it. I'm also surprised no one's talking about it. So yeah, I'd like to mention that. Um, somehow, <laughs> a third totally defensible grammatical interpretation of the first verse of the Bible, people just ignored. Hmm. Which, it doesn't sound as good as the other ones in a beginning. It's just really generic. So I can see why it's not really popular, but that's just as popular. I mean, possible, right? So huh. I'll throw that well, I guess there. maybe contextually people would have an issue with it because I mean, one, there is the inherent idea that, Hey, most people think that Genesis one is describing the material creation of the world and you don't create all these things if they've already been created before. So, so and if, if this is the first time where everything's been created, then it doesn't make sense to say that there's other creation periods, right? Right. Right. But it doesn't have to imply that there would be other creation events. Okay. It could just imply there were other beginnings. So well, it, what other it, kind of beginnings would there be? Uh, the beginning when God didn't create. So the beginning <laughs> of, we can fantasize what else was going on. Angels. I don't know. Just creating space okay. and time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, so the, just the idea is that in Hebrew, Rashith does not have to be so, so massive as the word, English word beginning, like English no. word beginning, like you can only have one, come on. Um, but if Rashith is just a really like, a, just a lot softer of a word, you can have all yeah. sorts of Rashiths, right? So, and that's, if the audience is in that sort of mindset, it makes sense to read, you know, okay, here's one Rashith where God created heaven and earth. This is an yeah. initial period. We can call it that initial period. Is a little bit less, you know, up there with connotations. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. That's fun. All right. Well, it's it's been a oh. Also, one more thing. Um, how much do you know about Greek? Uh, I've done a little bit of Greek, uh, less proficient at it than uh, Hebrew. Why? Because I I noticed you didn't mention so Heiser and Homestead both mentioned that uh, NRK can be translated as just like in a beginning or in the initial period of like, it doesn't have to specifically refer to that because there isn't an article there. But at the same time, a lot of 
Greek scholars would also say, well, like Greek has the same thing that Hebrew does where there doesn't have to be an article for it to refer to a specific, you know, absolute point. Uh, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think you just summed it up there. Um, it can go either way in Greek as well. Um, scholars have said, hey, there's the same problem. Like the word can work with the article. It can work without the article. Um, so I guess the reason that's significant is it just tells us that the Greek is also a little bit vague, at least on the article. So yeah. the Greek is a bit more clear where they're going with the syntax, with the way the sentence works. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a little bit less clear what they thought about the article because it also, they don't translate it with the article in Greek. Um, but like Homestead pointed out in his second article, there are times where they do say then Argen, so the beginning. Um, so I guess on the article, it's a bit mixed what the Septuagint might have, what they might have thought. Uh, but in terms of the sentence level, I think they, yep. they clearly thought it was one sentence. All right. And then next year we'll come back. And after we're experts in Greek, yes. we'll have another conversation just on an RK. All I'm right. <laughs> All right. Leave it in the um, comments, Greek nerds. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Well, it's it's a bit of pleasure talking to you, Max. Awesome. Um, getting together here, hashing these things out. Uh, thanks so, so much for comment, coming on here. Um, we'll all be watching your journey as you, be, you become the best Genesis 1-1 scholar in the world. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks again. Um, and But otherwise, uh, I, hope, I hope you have a good rest of your night. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks.